Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we have much to be thankful for in our own lives and in the many things that we can enjoy, the way of life that we have often taken for granted. And so we just are grateful to you for Jesus and for his salvation through the gift of his life on the cross of Calvary. Thank you for this message of health that you've given us to share with others as well as be blessed. And we just ask that as we meet now this afternoon, that you would be here in our midst as you have promised and that you would guide us is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. If I were to take a poll of each of you, in terms of your nutritional philosophy, how you felt about various important things, each one of you would answer a little bit differently. Even though you are all Seventh-day Adventists and probably have been raised in the church, I would expect that most of you who are here at GYC West are here because it's part of the church that you've grown up in and you are interested and have been encouraged by your parents to learn more and to be here. I realize there are some of you who are the parents also, but you're here because of your interest in what this organization stands for. But we do differ. We have our differences. And so this afternoon I want to talk in for the next little bit about a philosophy of nutrition that I think is part and parcel is core of Seventh-day Adventist belief in this area. And I hope it is helpful to you. I was giving a talk on the topic of nutrition, had, had actually had finished it, and a man came up to me and he had a question, and this is what the question was. He said, what diet should I follow that I can live forever? Now, what answer would you give to that question? Okay, the Bible diet, the original diet. All right, anybody else? You see, there is really no diet that will guarantee that you'll live forever, even the original diet. And so I told him that. I said, there's really no diet that will help you do that. So then, quick as a wink, he came back and he asked me this question. He said, what diet can I eat that will prevent all disease? And I smiled at him and I said, there's really no diet that will present, prevent all disease. You're welcome to come and sit in the front again if you'd like or to stay where you are. Thank you. <laughs> um, and again, I had to say to him, there's really no diet that will help you do that. But that opened a conversation that we had together that lasted for probably 25 minutes after the presentation. 
too often we simplify or oversimplify very complex processes. Let me give you an example. If I placed a sharp knife against my skin with sufficient pressure, it would cause a cut. And that cut would bleed as long as I was alive. Now that's a simple explanation for a relatively complex process, and of course the, the process of, of clotting is even more complex, but we're just simply talking about cutting. If I were to take my cell phone And if a cell phone had a personality, it would be offended. This would be offended by, call, be call, by calling it a cell phone. It's really a computer that is also a cell phone. It's a smartphone. And most of you have those. Uh, they, they've become ubiquitous in our society today. And I mean, it's amazing to me the day and age in which we live. I've lived long enough that uh, I mean, I, I, graduated, I graduated from graduate school before there was a personal computer. Um, there were computers, but they were great big giant machines that were housed in the basements of large buildings. And today we look at them and laugh in terms of their power because this has more power than the mainframe that existed at Loma Linda or at Andrews University um, in its day. And never did I dream that I would carry around with me in my pocket in a device, let alone in my pocket of, any, uh, of a device of any size, but a little device that slips in any pocket that I have that has the complete published writings of Ellen White, that has the Bible, I have the Bible in about 14 versions, and I have it in Greek, and I have it in Hebrew, and I have it in the Strong's, and I mean, the tools are just amazing. I don't even have to be connected to access those things, and it's all here. Plus, I don't know how many books that I'm currently reading or have read and I haven't taken off yet. My email, it, it's almost your whole life. And then, of course, you have mapping software, GPS software, that works anywhere in the world. I was, I was in uh, Malmo, Sweden, just recently, and I didn't. I was. I was walking, and I didn't know where I was. And I saw this interesting building that looked really old. So I turned on my G Google Maps, and lo and behold, I could not only find out what built where I was, what building I was facing, but I got a history of that building, all on my phone. It's an amazing day and age that we live in. And they're only getting smaller. Very complex device. Now, if I were to hold that up and let go of it, it would not hit the ceiling. Why? Because of the law of gravity. Now, I'm not going to let go of it because I value this and I don't want to have to replace it. Although it's getting older, so I might like to replace it but I'm not going to do it deliberately. And yet in biology, the complexity is far, far greater than that phone. 
far greater. Um, I was just thinking, you know, there was a time when I was younger than the gentleman at the back here, who, uh, and, and I, would, I would record meetings. And they were great big machines. Took all my strength at, in my teen years to carry um, just to be able to make a recording. Now, it's a little device, records seemingly forever. Um, I don't know how much memory it has in it and at what bit rate it's recording, but it can record for a long time at remarkably high quality. I, the, it's an amazing day and age in which we live, and yet the circuitry that powers all of these things pales in significance to the human body. It pales in significance. There have been many attempts over the years to equate the processing power of the human brain to computers. I think they've all failed because the more we learn about the brain, the more we realize it has more power and more capacity than we ever even dreamed. And it is the human mind that designs the circuitry that powers these kinds of devices. And that which it designs is not nearly as sophisticated as what does the designing and is able to comprehend that kind of thing. In biology, there are always a large number of steps in the chain of events that leads to the final result. And we fail often to realize that when we think about health concepts. And so I hear people say, if you exercise, you'll never get a heart attack. I'm sorry. You will lower your risk. If you eat a good diet, you will not live forever. None of us will live forever. You can eat a perfect diet. You can eat, you can exercise to perfection. You can get all the sleep you need. But as human beings, we will die at some point as long as we live on this earth. Now, when people think about dying, Everybody recognizes they will die if they stop and think about it. The thing is, they don't want to die too early, prematurely. We need to recognize that it's a relatively small portion of people who smoke cigarettes that actually get lung cancer. Just because you smoke cigarettes doesn't guarantee that you'll get lung cancer. And there are people who live to 95, 100 years old and they smoke cigarettes. And we go, wow, how can that be? But it's reality. There are those who eat a diet that's high in all of the harmful things, saturated fat, no fiber, lots of sugar, lots of cholesterol, excess calories, a majority of calories coming from animal foods. And they live a long time. And we go, what? is going on there. And there are those who eat healthy diets and they die prematurely of cancer. And we say, something's not right. What's going on? And those are good questions to ask and they're important ones that we need to ask. Disease is not simply, is not a model of simple causation. 
we have to look much, much deeper. And as, we have, as we've learned more and more about the genome and the genes, and the whole gene map now for humans has been mapped out, along with many other organisms. And now we're talking about applying that knowledge to individuals in trying to find treatments for their diseases and so forth. Today we recognize that most diseases are the result of a long series of mutations in genes that are vital in supporting the integrity of thousands of other genes within a single cell. That's the complexity that we're talking about. Disease now, today we realize that disease is caused by the complex interactions of our environment, our diet, our physical activity, many other things, including even our thoughts and our attitudes. Now, you younger people here will not recognize this picture. Some of you may. His name's Jim Fix. Jim Fix wrote a book in the late 1970s. He popularized running. Jim Fix was a vegetarian. He was thin, but he was overweight in his teen years. He had quit smoking before he turned 22. He never used alcohol. He had low cholesterol. He had a high HDL cholesterol, the good cholesterol. He exercised to perfection, really, and he died of a heart attack when he was 42 years old while he was running. And we say, why? Now, this guy you recognize, all of you, his name's Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill was an omnivore. He ate anything. Didn't matter. He was overweight almost his entire life. He smoked heavily, and he loved smoking. He drank maybe more than he smoked, and he loved drinking. He had high cholesterol. He had low, good cholesterol, the HDLs. I'm sure his CRP was very high. Um, he got very little exercise. In fact, he wrote in his later years that the only exercise that he got was being pallbearer to his friends who had died before he did. Um, a bit sarcastic but it reflected his attitude toward physical activity. And yet he died at 92 years old. And we say, wait a minute, what's going on here? Does what I eat, does what I how I choose to live make a difference? And I, my answer to that is absolutely, it does. Now, you're all acquainted with the game dominoes. Seems like more people play Mexican train today than the old dominoes. But um, I grew up playing the mathematical dominoes. And uh, we didn't play dominoes except that we had to make, um, we, had to, we could only place things if they were multiples of five. And there were ways of scoring. And I, now there are many other ways of doing it. And I realize that. But as a kid, I liked to line those domino chips up on end. And I would make all kinds of patterns on the floor in the kitchen because there was no carpet. And then I when it was all lined up, I would press, you know, tip one over at the end. And it would hit the next and the next and the next and the next. And I'd watch them all go down. Then I'd start all over again. It was fun. One of those simple games. 
Now, life is like those dominoes, all lined up. And by making good choices, what we're actually doing is we're tying up one of those blocks, or maybe two or three of them. And so when something happens and the block next to it falls against it, it's held up and the reaction is stopped. That's really what happens when we make good choices. We are shoring up, we are securing certain pieces in that chain so that they cannot fall over. The whole chain will not fall over. So healthy choices minimize our risks. That's a fundamental concept of health that we need to recognize. Healthy choices do not provide guarantees, but they do, without question, minimize our risks. That also informs us as to how we need to speak to the public, to the church, and to others. We cannot make blanket promises. We can simply say the evidence is extremely strong that by choosing a healthy diet, by choosing to exercise, by choosing to get enough rest, by choosing a healthy lifestyle, we will minimize our risks. None of us really know what the choices are that our great-grandparents made, which today we know influences our own genes. The choices our grandparents, the choices our parents made, all influence the outcome of our health. But we can't do anything about those. And so there's no, re no reason to cry over it. There's no reason to whine over it. The thing we can do is alter our own choices for the better. And when we do that, we actually influence the genetics that take place inside of our cells. And that's today called epigenetics. It is the influence of the, our choices on those things. And like I said this morning, when we use the illustration of the leptin and the ghrelin, um, when we don't get enough sleep, we actually upregulate the production of ghrelin, which is not what we want, and we downregulate the production of leptin, which is really what we want in order to maintain a good, healthy weight. So why do we as Seventh-day Adventists emphasize diet? Why do we emphasize other aspects of health? I was preaching at a church a few years ago, and as often happens, I'm asked to preach on health. <laughs> and that's what I did. There was a lady came, coming to greet me as I was standing shaking hands at the door, and I could tell she had a message for me. You know those kind. And um, as she got there, she wouldn't even shake my hand. But she looked me straight in the eye, and she said, Sonny, and uh, you get an idea of her age. And she said, Sonny, do you believe that Jesus is coming soon? 
Well, how does a Seventh-day Adventist answer that? You look at her and say, of course I do. And she then put her finger in my face and she said, then why are you talking about this health business? Because when Jesus comes, the Bible says, I will be changed in a twinkling. And it doesn't matter what I eat or do in this life because I will have a new body when Jesus comes. Well, she wasn't particularly open to any comments or suggestions. She had said her piece, and uh, she marched off, literally. I think sometimes, as Seventh-day Adventists, we have made a mistake in the way we have proclaimed the health message. And not in a judgmental way, that's another issue. But what I'm referring to is that we have framed it in terms of living longer, having less disease, feeling better, and accomplishing more. But I don't think that's the primary purpose that God gave to us, the health message. The real reason that he gave us a health message is that God has called us to manage the gifts that he has given us. It's a matter of stewardship. And too often we think about stewardship as only money. But money is the product of time and talent. That's all it is. And if we don't use our time well or we don't use our talents well, then we're not good stewards. These are all things which God has given to us. God calls each of us to manage best that which he has entrusted to us. And that includes the physical areas of life. It includes the mental areas of life. It includes our social and our spiritual. And some people go, wait a minute, what does health have to do with spirituality? You know, it has a lot to do with it. And as I shared this morning, just something as simple as losing a few hours of sleep impacts the ability of the frontal lobes to make decisions. You and I are making spiritual decisions every day. We're faced with what we're going to read, what we're going to watch, what we're going to listen to what we're going to allow into our lives, what kind of things we're going to do, those all have spiritual ramifications. And so health, diet, if you will, has everything to do with stewardship. The dividend clear minds is the primary purpose the dividend is maybe a longer life according to God's will for you. Minimizing risks. This gentleman again asked me the third question. He said, what diet can I eat to minimize my risks of disease and have the best quality of life? And I looked at him and I said, now that's the question you need to be asking because that's where we can provide answers that are satisfactory to you. 
So let's look at, at uh, just a quickly at some of the principles. You know some of these things. I don't need to repeat them. We all are well acquainted with the original diet found in Genesis 1, uh, verse 29. God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, and they will be yours for food. And then in Genesis 3.18, he adds, and you will eat the plants of the field. Now, there have been a, there's been a historical distinction among Seventh-day Adventists between Genesis 1.29 and 3.18, but the Hebrew scholars basically say it's the same root word, and it's, it's basically that God said, I give you the plant foods as your food. Now, what kind of food does that include? Well, we also have a, a very familiar phrase, and it rolls off of all of our tongues, fruits, whole grains, vegetables, legumes, and nuts and seeds. And we have various ways of saying it, and you travel around the world and you discover that they have a different order. We often talk, in this country, we have talked classically about a lacto-ovo vegetarian diet, but in the rest of the world, they've said an ovo-lacto diet. I don't really know why. And so when you say lacto-ovo, the translator is not quite sure how to translate that. You say, oh, ovo-lacto, oh, that has no problem with that. These, what are these kinds of foods? Well, they are best consumed when they come from nature, as they come from nature. Not refined, not pulled apart, not fractionated. Those foods are low in fat, particularly in saturated fat. They have no cholesterol. No plant foods have cholesterol. Even the coconut has no cholesterol. It may have more saturated fat, palm kernel oil also, but it has no cholesterol. All plant foods, when they are in their natural form, are high in fiber. They are low in refined sugar, and they're actually low in the sweeteners, relatively. They contain rich sources of vitamins and minerals, and they are really the only source of phytochemicals and antioxidants. Today, we know that in addition to all of the vitamins and the, the macronutrients and the, and the macrovitamins and the microvitamins and minerals and the trace elements and all these things that nutrition has classically studied and elucidated, Today we now know that there's over 3,000 phytochemicals that have protective and beneficial effects in human health. And where do they come from? The plant foods. That's the good news. We don't have to even, you don't even have to learn the list of 3,000. Um, if you just choose a diet that's based on plant foods, and is largely unrefined in the way nature provided it, you will meet all of your nutrient needs. And that's the good news. God made diet very simple. Just had a conversation earlier this week with a gentleman who has de is developing a manual for teaching health. And he had sent it to me and he asked me to look at it. And he had, out of 434 pages, it was a big manual. Um, out of 434 pages, more than 280 were devoted to nutrition. And I said to him, uh, 
how come you didn't talk much about sleep? Oh, well, there's two pages on sleep. I said, is sleep not important? What about exercise? There's two pages on exercise. He said, ah, oh, I'm beginning to get the point. We had a very good conversation. I said, you have made diet so complex that most people will not understand it. Now, the study of nutrition is fascinating to me. And if that's what you're interested in doing, sorry, they'll have to leave a message. I, uh, I've had three teleconferences today in addition to our classes here. Um, a lot of things going on right now. Anyway. Um, I said to him, simplify this. Don't get people all twisted up over this and that and the other thing. God made a good diet very, very easy and simple and readily available. It's the most economical. It's the most efficacious. And the same principles that apply in this country apply around the world with a few small changes. Um, and, and he was hoping to take this Manual International, and I said, this is, this is written f to confuse the American, let alone anybody else. Um, God made health a very simple thing. Readily, that you don't have to have a PhD. You don't have to have a college degree. God made it available to everyone, and we need to keep that in mind as we present to the community, to our neighbors and friends, this wonderful message, we don't have to make it complicated. And this morning I shared with you this verbiage that is being found more and more in the guidelines that are being made around the world. I just received one last week from Brazil that was translated for me. And it's amazing. That's a country that has guarded very, very carefully its, its livestock industry. And uh, it now is saying, not quite as clearly as this, but it's getting pretty close to saying, use plant foods as the foundation of your diet. It's big progress. Um, there are countries in the world where that ha we, they haven't gotten that far yet, but it's coming. And we can be very grateful for that. A vegetarian diet has many distinct advantages. It a, a balanced, healthful vegetarian diet tends to lower the risk of heart disease, lower the risk of cancer, lower diabetes risk, lower obesity, hypertension, dementia, um, osteoporosis, and it tends to enhance life expectancy. People who are vegetarians tend to live longer. There are many distinct advantages. And the world is beginning to recognize that. Now, just a little bit of personal history. My father was born in India, raised in India. His father and mother were born in India. My grandparents became the first Seventh-day Adventists from the British crowd that became Seventh-day Adventists in India. They were baptized in 1911 in the city of Calcutta, long before my dad was born. He was raised in India, went to England, 
and then through a remarkable series of events, my grandparents decided to migrate to this country, to Pacific Union College, because the pastor who had baptized them was now teaching at Pacific Union College. This is when my grandparents retired from the British Civil Service. Grandfather retired. The year before, they, they decided to migrate to the US. My father was in his early years of pastoring in England, and he had heard a voice that said to him, go take the medical course. And he was sure it was the devil that was speaking to him because his oldest brother had taken medicine at the University of London and he had lost his way spiritually along with his wife. And the, to the day he died, he never came back to the Lord. But he did not want that to happen to himself. And two weeks later, he heard the same voice say, go take the medical course. And he was sure it was the devil and he had wrestled for months with it when his parents invited him to join them in coming to the United States because he was not married yet. And as an addendum to this conversation, my grandmother who said to him, by the way, Mervyn, did you know that the church operates a medical school in California? And he did not know. Now it's hard for us today to recognize that, but for somebody who grew up in the backwoods of India, back in those days, it's understandable that he had no idea about the College of Medical Evangelists at Loma Linda. And he then told his parents about what he had been wrestling with and praying with, this voice, and he decided that the Lord was leading. So he came to PUC, and he met my mother while he was taking his pre-meds at PUC. She was a native Californian, but not particularly interested in this skinny British British guy that showed some interest in him at first, but later they fell in love and they were married in his medical school years. The war came and he either had to go back to England and do his military service or he had to go into the US military and the US Army took over all medical schools in the US. And all students had to wear uniforms and all faculty were commissioned. And as a result of the need for more physicians, they mandated that there be more acceptances of medical students, which required more faculty. And Loma Linda, the College of Medical Evangelists, asked my father if he would be willing to teach until the war was over. And then they would give him back his residency in general surgery, which we, he was in the middle of. And true to their word, when the war was over, they did that. But he said, thank you, but no thank you. I found my calling. The Lord has called me to teach. And he spent the rest of his career, all of his life really, teaching. And he was a gifted teacher. Several years later, they came to him and they said, we're ready to start a school of nutrition. And you've shown some interest in health and healthful living and he was teaching an, op an optional class to students on, on health ministry. He was teaching medical students how to give health talks in churches and communities. And um, that's why they picked him for that. They said, go to any university, universities you want to, any university you wish in the US or Canada, and we'll sponsor you. 
So he looked around and he decided he would apply to Harvard and he was accepted at Harvard University in the School of Public Health Department of Nutrition. And when it came to his dissertation or research project, he felt very strongly that he needed to study the adequacy, the nutritional adequacy of a vegetarian diet. Nobody had ever done that before. There was nothing in literature like that. When he informed the chairman of the department, he said yes, but his committee said no. And in fact, their no was overridden by the chairman of the department, Dr. Frederick Stair. He was never a vegetarian, but he was willing to follow that. And um, um, they, um, word got back to Loma Linda administration and they told my father, don't do that. And he said, why not? And they said, because if you discover it's deficient, then it'll be embarrassing to Adventists. And he said, no, this is the Lord's diet. It will not be embarrassing. Frederick Stair overread, overrode the committee. And although he had some serious opposition, the Lord helped him through it. And he published, well, he finished writing his dissertation. It was accepted. Uh, he graduated from Harvard. He then published in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition three, a series of three articles in 1953 and 1954 on the adequacy of a vegetarian diet. There were some, some amazing things that were discovered in that research. And they got published in a very reputable journal. And it, now today, even today, anybody writing an article on the history of vegetarianism will cite those articles um, as being the, the watershed articles on the adequacy of a, of a vegetarian diet. Having said all that, Dr. Stair in the late 1950s said to my father, you need to write an article for the, American, for the Journal of the American Dietetic Association and of your work. And he said, you write it and I'll put my name on it because in the world of science, it's always very helpful to have a senior member who's well-recognized put their name on an article if you are a junior scientist and just getting started. So he, um, um, he wrote the article and Stair put his name on it and he submitted it. Never heard a thing, not one thing. Four years later, he got a letter from the president of the, Amer of the American Dietetic Association in which she had simply written in her own hand on his cover letter the following words, never, all in capitals, will our journal publish anything on a vegetarian diet. Big exclamation mark, signed her name. Not even the editor, it had gone all the way to the president of the organization. Well, 
amazingly, eight years later, that same organization came to the Department of Nutrition at Loma Linda and said, we need help in writing a position statement on a vegetarian diet. We are getting so many demands from our dietitians for information about a vegetarian diet, we don't know where to turn. And that statement has been revised a number of times. And of course, the organization is not called the American Dietetic Association anymore, it's called the American College of Nutrition and Dietetics. That change took place four years ago, but it's the same organization. And it is situated next door to the Livestock and Meat Board of the United States in Chicago. And on the other side is the Dairy Board. And those two organizations provide more funding than all other organizations combined to the Dietetic Foundation. And so the organization has been very, very reticent, but because of popular demand, they have had to accept that a vegetarian diet. And today, the, the position of the American uh, College of Nutrition and Dietetics is that an appropriately planned vegetarian diet, including total vegetarian or vegan diets, are healthful, nutritionally adequate, and may provide health benefits in the prevention and treatment of certain diseases. It's a 180 degree turn from what it used to be. Well-placed vegetarian, well-planned vegetarian diets are appropriate for individuals during all stages of the life cycle, including pregnancy, lactation, infancy, childhood, and adolescence, and for athletes. So it's a blanket endorsement to a well-planned, balanced, vegetarian diet. And uh, if you go to their website, the finest bibliography, the most complete bibliography on the adequacy of a vegetarian diet is found on their website today. Now, there are some nutrients of concern for those who choose to be vegetarians. And I want to talk just briefly about those. The first one, and it is the biggest one, is vitamin B12. There is no vitamin B12 in plant products. B12 is found only in the animal kingdom. Even the cow does not get B12, does not synthesize B12. The cow eats, grazes the grass, the grass contains lots of bacteria, and it is the bacteria from the grass that provide the B12 in the beef or in the milk. We need a source of vitamin B12. Now, if you look at Adventist Health Study data, especially Adventist Health Study 1, you realize that the vast majority of vegetarians were lacto-ovo vegetarians. And they got their B12 from milk and eggs. There was a wide range of how much of dairy products or, or egg that was used. And all of us know that there are some who use copious quantities and others use very moderate quantities of those food products. Adventist Health Study 2 now has a significant cohort of individuals who are total vegetarians and not using any animal products. The data is not fully robust yet. And while you hear claims here and there, we still don't have final data from Adventist Health Study 2. And the big question is, 
will the total veget uh, the big question in in the minds of many in the US is is it better to be a lacto-ovo vegetarian or is it healthier to be a total vegetarian and I don't have an answer to that question because we don't have an answer from Adventist health study yet Adventists die slowly and the endpoint for Advent for the uh, that study is death and so we're still waiting for about 1600 deaths to occur in the population being studied before we will have fully robust data. We probably will never have a clear answer to that question. What it appears is that for some diseases, a total vegetarian diet may, be, may con convey a lesser risk, but for others it may be a slightly higher risk. What we're seeing right now is the numbers are very, very close. And I think what I want to emphasize most of all in terms of Adventist Health Study and where we are at this point in Adventist Health Study 2 is that the differences between the total vegetarian and the lacto-ovo vegetarian is, is 0.06 points in favor of the, this is in total mortality, in favor of the total vegetarian. However, when you begin looking at a wider data, the use of red meat conveys a 1.6 to 2.05 increase in risk. So that is huge compared to the 0.06 difference and that is where, unfortunately, we seem to have some church fights developing over the total vegetarian versus the lacto-ovo vegetarian. And I think that's tragic. And I believe that plays into Satan's hands. I'll say a little more about that a little later. Where does the, the lacto-ovo vegetarian really gets, has no problem in meeting their B12 requirements because they get it from milk and from eggs and dairy products. Um, the non-vegetarian also has no problem because they get it from the, animal, from the flesh foods that they consume. Plus, in most cases, they use some dairy and milk as well, or uh, dairy and egg as well. So where does the total vegetarian get their vitamin B12? Well, it's really very easy in the country in which you and I live. At breakfast this morning, they handed me some soy milk. And if you read the label, which I did, it is fortified with vitamin B12. It's a milk equivalent. It's got vitamin D, vitamin C, uh, I'm sorry, uh, calcium. You know, it's a fortified soy milk. And most soy milks in the US are that way. Every box of cereal that you buy in the US is fortified with vitamin B12. When you buy on the, on the cafeteria line over by the, over by the bread, they had some uh, brewer's yeast. If it is nutritional yeast, which is the most common source that's sold in the US, it actually has B12 in it, not because the yeast has B12, but because that yeast is grown on a B12 enriched media. And it's gotten it by, con by contamination, if you will, uh, it's gotten it, and it's done intentionally that way 
because it has absorbed it from, from the media in which it has grown, and it continues with that B12. B12 is not a difficult nutrient to get for the total vegetarian in the United States. And in most places of Western Europe, that's true. In most places of Australia, that's true. Now, I was a few months ago in Zambia, in Lusaka, in Zambia. One of the things I enjoy doing is going and looking at where people buy their foods. So I go to the open air markets, I go to the supermarkets if they have them, and I look at the products that they have available. And I went to eight supermarkets in Lusaka. And several of them were in the richest areas of town. And in one store, I found soy milk. And it was fortified with B12. Do you know how much it cost? $12 per liter. Now, if you go to Costco and you buy a case of 12 quarts of soy milk, you're going to pay just over a dollar per quart. If you were asked to spend $12 per quart, would you buy it? There are many people in this country who could not afford it. Maybe all of you could afford it. If I chose to, my wife and I could probably afford it at $12. We'd have to scrimp on something else, but uh, we, we could do that. But when you consider that the average wage per month in Zambia is less than $36, you say, wait a minute. What is the most economical source of a vitamin B12 in that kind of culture? Now, maybe in time, that will change. Somebody said to me, oh, but they can make their own soy milk. May I let you know that bean juice has no vitamin B12 in it. Homemade soy milk has no. It may taste great, but it has no vitamin B12 in it. You're going to have to find a source, and you're going to have to fortify it if it's going to. So we need to be very cautious in the message we deliver in various parts of the world. We are a global church, and I am very concerned that sometimes individuals from this country go unthinkingly, and I, I know they do it sincerely in most cases, and they deliver a message that not only number one is that for good health you need to use no animal products whatsoever, no milk, no eggs, no cheese. But secondly, they drive the nail into the coffin by saying you will not get to heaven if you use those products. A couple of years ago, I was in the Philippines. I have many former students that are workers, pastors, and so forth. One of them took a bus ride, heard that I was there, and took a bus ride for almost eight hours to come and see me, he and his wife. And somebody from this country had been there for two weeks and done some health meetings in their district. And they had not only taught them that for good health they needed to be total vegetarians, they had also said you won't get to heaven 
if you use those products. And that's a tragedy. And they said, would you please come down and have a weekend with our church? Well, I had a very busy schedule, but I was able to carve out time, and I took an eight-hour bus ride on Friday and an eight-hour bus ride back on Sunday afternoon in order to try and accommodate these students and help. One of the things that I did when I got to their district was I sat down with a number of their church members, and I just asked them a simple question. And I've lived in the Philippines. I know pretty much what Filipinos generally eat. And, but I said, and this, this was in a fairly rural area, and I said to them, you know, I'd like to know how, many, how much milk do you use and how many eggs do you use in a week's time? And in this area, the answer I got was that for almost all of the families, if they had three to four chicken eggs a week for the average family of six, seven individuals with the children, two parents and the children, that they ate maybe three to four eggs for the whole family. And that was done as in a stir fry, stir fried rice in particular. Um, that's how many eggs they got, divided among the whole family. If they were able to get a half a cup of reconstituted dairy milk from dry powder, if they could get that for the children, they gave maybe one cup a week to each child, spread over the week. Now, I don't know where your philosophy are, where your thinking is. I don't think that's excessive use of animal products. In fact, combined with no flesh foods, with, with greens and with rice and, and, and other things, it's actually quite a healthy diet. And those things are essential in providing at least the B12 that they need. Now they eat lots of greens and they eat lots of dark green, dark leafy greens. So, you know, they get their calcium and, and other things without problem. Um, and they get lots of sunshine, they get lots of exercise because they're outdoors. And, I mean, they're not really sedentary indoors as we are today. And then we haven't said much about vitamin D, but uh, we really need to be aware of our need of vitamin D. We do not need supplements if we get outdoors adequately for enough time of the, of, of the day, each day. Um, we don't have to sunburn ourselves. We don't have to go and roast on the beach um, nearly naked, as some think they should. Um, that, it, that's not what the Lord has, has designed us to do. But we need to get enough sunshine. And then we, get a, we manufacture all of the vitamin D that we need. So God has not made it difficult. And I think we need to be sen sensitive and we need to be sure that we don't moralize our dietary and health recommendations. Too often that's the last weapon we pull out. It's the big gun. You won't get to heaven if you do this or you don't do this. And then we wing our way to some other part of the world, leaving a very mixed and disturbing message. We just lost a pastor two years ago in Africa because somebody had come from 
Western Europe in this case, had done a series of health meetings and had said, you don't need to worry about vitamin B12. And you do not need to, you, you will not get to heaven if you use any animal products. And so he became a total vegetarian, a very conscientious one. And he was very, very careful. And he developed B12 deficiency. I had the opportunity, I was asked to visit with him and to plead with him. And it was to no avail. And he said it would be a breach of his faith to take a supplement of vitamin B12. Um, and by the way, supplements were available in his country. In Zambia, it was almost impossible to find a B12 supplement. So for those who chose to be total vegetarians, they either had to buy very expensive imported soy milk, or they had to buy, and, and it was very hard to find B12 supplements, and they were very expensive. Most workers would not be able to afford it, let alone most people in the population. So this, unfortunately, this pastor died of B12 deficiency, and he left a family of six children and his wife. Um, all of them are, the children are now, the oldest is now 18. Um, tragedy. We need to be very sensitive and very careful. Um, you and I live in a, in a culture, in an environment where if I told you you had to do something, you would probably say, huh, who can tell me, how can you tell me I have to do that? I mean, that's the independence of our country. And, uh, but if you live in another country and an American comes, or somebody from Australia or from Western Europe and makes that kind of pronouncement, carries a lot more weight than what my word does for you here today. Um, and we need to understand that when we go overseas. We can carry a wonderful message and we can, carry a, we can carry out very important work, but we need to do it with the grace of God and in the right attitude. Anyway, uh, vitamin B12 is primarily the, the, the nutrient of concern for the total vegetarian. Calcium and vitamin D can be uh, the N3 fatty acids, uh, Iron is not so much of a problem. We, we recognize that today. Uh, again, there are people who eat unbalanced vegetarian diets, and they may have problems with all of these. Uh, and that's why there's there, zinc and iodine. But eating a balanced diet is really not much of a problem. Um, multivitamins are more and more, red, more readily available in many parts of the world than they used to be. There's still some places where they're very expensive relative to income. It may look cheap to us, but they're expensive. We have to realize that when we look at prices. Um, I believe that there are parts of the world today, people who live in parts of the world today who, to live the most economically and the most healthfully, really need to leave off the flesh foods, but they need to use some milk and eggs on a regular basis in moderate amounts. Um, in order to maintain their good health. Um, and that's the most economical way of doing it. Now that may change as things change, and uh, that was probably an important way for early Seventh-day Adventists in North America um, to, to live a nutritionally adequate diet.
vegetarian diet is not a test of fellowship in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And I suppose if, I, if you take home one message from me today, it is that. It is not a test of fellowship. Neither lacto-ovo nor a total vegetarian. We strongly recommend that along with adequate exercise and rest, we are to adopt the most healthful diet possible and abstain from the unclean foods identified in scripture. That's what is in the baptismal certificate. It is not more specific than that anywhere in the world. If we look at the fundamental beliefs, Seventh-day Adventists believe the diet God ordained in the Garden of Eden, the vegetarian diet, is the ideal. I have no problem with that. But sometimes we cannot have the ideal. That's what we've been talking about in certain parts of the world. In those circumstances, in any given situation or locale, those who wish to stay in optimum health will eat the best food that they can obtain. It's very, very balanced and wise advice. If we look in the SDA church manual, we see that we encourage a balanced vegetarian diet. There has been no backing down. I got, a, I got a call the other day from somebody on another part of the world saying, I understand the church has changed its position um, and it now is saying you can eat a flesh food diet. I said, no, that's not the recommendation. The manual has not changed. And I sent them uh, this from the SDA working policy along with the quotes from, from the fundamental beliefs. We encourage a balanced vegetarian diet and the church encourages the avoidance of flesh foods. That has not changed. But we don't force and we do not mandate. We believe in education. And that's what all of us need to do. And it is a bit disturbing to some people that we have a rather broad dietary pathway. But we have to realize that no matter what path we're on, there's always one ditch on one side, there's a ditch on the other side. And anytime you ride in the ditch, the ride gets rough. And um, we allow our members the privilege of determining what the middle of the road is for themselves. We're coming up on General Conference in just a couple of weeks, but last February I got this thick envelope in my office and it came from somebody, I know who it was, have known that person for years, but it was a proposal that at the, this General Conference that we mandate that to be a member of the church you need to be a total vegetarian. Now I could have said to that person, you know, the agenda has already been set, and there's no way we're going to get this on. But in all honesty, I had to go to this, I had to call that person and say, you know, I don't support that. We will never move in that direction. Um, we certainly encourage, we educate, but we do not mandate, mandate, and we should never see that formulated into a policy. Seventh-day Adventists, and I, I want you to think carefully about this, Seventh-day Adventists differ in their view of a vegetarian diet than most of the rest of the world, even among vegetarians. You may say, well, how can that be? 
but we do. We recommend a healthy lifestyle and a vegetarian diet for hygienic reasons. We are hygienic vegetarians. We have always been hygienic vegetarians. That means that we've recommended it for better health, for good health. We have never recommended it for theological or religious reasons. But remember, if you look out at the world of vegetarians, they have not been influenced by the health reasons. They have primarily been influenced by the philosophical reasons that originated with Hinduism and the transmigration of the soul. And they choose not to eat flesh foods because they do not, and they also choose not to wear leather belts, leather shoes, because they do not want to partake of a part of their departed Aunt Sue or Uncle George, to put it bluntly. Now, health has crept into their philosophy and thinking, but the original philosophy was a philosophical philosophy of vegetarian diet. And as Seventh-day Adventists, we differ from that dramatically. And we should never move to the theological or the philosophical reasons. We need to remember that our recommendations are based on hygiene and a matter of stewardship and of, main, of managing the good gifts that God has given us. Hence, and because of what I just told you, and I'm, I, I haven't taken very long to explain it, I believe we're making a big mistake to use the word vegan. Because vegan has its derivation in Hinduism. I think that we will be embarrassed at some point for our association with that philosophy of a vegetarian diet. I think we would be far better off to be call ourselves total vegetarians or complete vegetarians. And I have a I'm beginning to recommend a term that I call an, a meat-free or an animal-free diet in place of the term vegan. Now, I know vegan just rolls off our tongues today because we hear it so often. And I go to churches and we have this food that's vegan and this food that isn't and so on and so forth. But I think that's a mistake. I, I also think that we need to recognize that there is a reason that God has called us to be vegetarians that most of us do not think about very much. All of us know Isaiah 7:14, the virgin giving birth to, and his name would be called Emmanuel. But most of us stop there and we don't look at verse 15. Verse 15 says this, curds and honey he shall eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. Now this is talking about the same Christ child. It says he will eat curds and honey. Now what does curds and honey mean? If you go back to the Hebrew word from which curds and honey is, is translated, it appears 22 times in the Old Testament. And it's variously translated curds and honey, milk and honey, and when God described the children, the, the land of Eden, I mean the, the land of promise to the children of Israel, he described it as a land filled with milk and honey. And he used that same, the Bible writers use the same Hebrew term. 
that is translated here curds and honey. And sometimes we see it as curds and honey and milk and honey, um, but they're really synonymous. Let me ask you, in the land of Canaan, were the hills oozing honey and the rivers flowing milk? No. That is a term that symbolizes adequacy. And here the prophet Isaiah is saying that when the Christ child came, he would eat curds and honey, that he would eat adequately for his needs. But I think the most important thing to take away from this is the reason why that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. We're back to that decision-making process that we talked about this morning. And we need to take that to heart. Now let me ask you a question. Can we eat our way to heaven? We cannot. You can eat the very finest food. You can live the very most perfect lifestyle you can. And if all your friends and your family wish you died young because you were so hard to get along with, you've accomplished nothing. We cannot eat our way to heaven. Nutrition is the gift of God. But I'd like to suggest to you that we may be able, oh, sorry, we can't eat our way to heaven. Nutrition is the gift of God. But we may be able to eat our way out of heaven by refusing those good gifts. Now, you know what that animal is. Unfortunately, we have some in our church. There are a lot of health reformers that need an attitude adjustment. Too many of us are prickly and unfriendly to those who are struggling at different points in their growth. Vegetarians are critical of those who are not vegetarians, and total vegetarians look down their noses at those who are lacto-ovo vegetarians, and it goes on and on. And my friends, I am really tired of the food fights that are going on in the Adventist church. We need to stop the food wars. We need to stop the labeling at potlucks because it differentiates people. They do, the potluck wars do more damage to more people than we can imagine. We need to stop this potluck nonsense. I was at a church just uh, about five and a half years ago. I'd preached in that church a number of times. It was a small church. It had struggled over dietary issues for a number of years. People would come and they had this burden and then they had new people would come and they had that burden. And, there were times when there were hardly anybody attending church because of that, and then there were times when the church seemed to be thriving. And The last time I preached there, they invited me to come to Potluck. And there was about probably 50, 60 people in attendance, and probably 45 of those came to Potluck. And as I was waiting for the Potluck to start, and I came to the fellowship hall, there was a lady who was very much in charge of that Potluck. And I think you know that kind. And she kept beckoning to me and calling out, Dr. Harding, come to the front of the line. 
Well, there were about a dozen kids who were far hungrier than I was, and I don't need to go to the. I don't need to go through first. I don't like to go through first because everybody looks at what I eat, and I. It's, I'm not embarrassed about my choices. It's just that they don't need to focus their attention on that, and the kids need to eat first anyway. And I said, no, no. Finally, she said, Dr. Harding, come say the blessing. Well, what can you do? You can only fight it for so long. And so I went forward, and I said the blessing, and I expected to just stand aside, let the kids eat, and then I would join the line. But as soon as I opened my eyes, there was a plate being held in front of me. And there was, it would have made a, it would have made a big scene if I had refused. And so I took the plate and thanked her. And as I took the plate, she took her finger and she pointed to the first dish that was on the table. And she said in a voice that every person in that room heard, this dish has real cheese in it. I wasn't sure what to do. That dish was not my favorite dish. Had nothing been said, I would have walked right past it because I just don't care for it. It was a macaroni and cheese with some kind of a topping on it in a casserole dish. I guess they call it macaroni and cheese casserole. And uh, I thought to myself, what do I do? I have no idea who made this. The tone in which that said was rude and ugly. And uh, make a long story short, I decided I'd take a spoonful of it. I took a spoonful of it, and as I did, she went, oh! and everybody was now looking at what I was taking. And that's OK. They had a lot of wonderful choices on the table. I had a nice plate full of food. I sat down. We had wonderful fellowship. When the, when the meal was over, I was leaving the room. And uh, as I walked out into the hallway, there was a lady standing across against the wall. And there were tears coming down her cheeks. There was no pastor, no elder there. I didn't know what the problem was. So I walked over to her, and I just said, is there something I can do to help you, ma'am? And she said, I've been waiting to talk to you, Dr. Harding. She said, I'm the lady that made that dish with real cheese. And then the tears really began to flow. She said, I was just baptized four weeks ago. She said, nobody's talked to me about the health message. She said, you don't know how thrilled I've been with the message I've learned. She said, I love the Adventist message. But now that I'm baptized, I hear all about health reform. And she said, this is the third time this has happened to me. And with tears in her eyes, she said, I took the ham out of it. And I said, ma'am, thank you so much for doing that. I said, let's go upstairs. You and I need to visit for a few minutes. I visited with her for about an hour. There were a lot of tears. It made me weep. I, there's no excuse for that kind of behavior in Seventh-day Adventist churches. And she told me, she said, 
I told my husband this morning while I was making that dish, and I'm glad she didn't tell that lady she made it on Sabbath morning because she'd have heard something about that too. She's just learning. She's a babe in the woods. She said, I told my husband that if this happened again, I would never darken the door of a Seventh-day Adventist church again. But she said, you took one spoonful. And she said, I'm coming back. I talked to her. I can't make excuses for that. But I talked to her about the philosophy of the health message. And I gave her a little education that she had never had. Read her some scriptures. Um, We prayed together. And when I got in the car, I called a pastor. Young pastor. I I knew him. I know him. Still do. Good young pastor. He was at another church in his district. I said, you've got a problem. He had baptized her. And I said, you... You need, to, uh, you need to deal with it. And he said, my wife and I will go and visit her this evening. Well, I went to general conference in Atlanta and was called to the GC and my life went from 80 miles an hour to 150 miles an hour and I kind of forgot about her, but one day I called this pastor and I said, tell me what happened. Oh, and that was about a year and a half later. Oh, he said, my wife and I went and saw her that evening. And he said, my wife put her arms around her, invited her to her home, gave her some cooking classes. He said, you'll be really pleased. She's in charge of potluck now. And I said, well, that's wonderful news, but uh, what happened to the other one? Oh, he said, we were having trouble with her in a number of areas, including this one. And he said, elders and I went and visited with her, and she got out of sorts, and she's not coming to our church anymore. But he said, we're much better off without her. He said, the good news that you will be thrilled with is that I've just baptized two weeks ago this lady's husband. And she said, they are both part of our church now, and they're enthusiastic members. And she's coordinating the the potluck, and he said, probably this next year she'll become the head deaconess. So God worked in her life. And uh, not every story works out that way. I can tell you more stories than we have time. Um, Vegetarian diet is not a test of fellowship and we need to be loving to people, especially our new members. And we need to stop the the food wars. Um, I have people say to me, how did, I don't go to potluck anymore because all they have is junk food. I have all those desserts and I know what Adventist potlucks look like. Sometimes there are more desserts than there are salads. And um, we've all seen it. And, you know, it's not always healthful food at our potlucks. But do we absent ourselves from those? This is a very interesting statement, how Christ ate at potlucks. While Christ accepted invitation to feasts and gatherings, he did not partake of all of the food offered him, but quietly ate of that which was appropriate for his physical necessities. Avoiding the many things that he did not need, his disciples were frequently invited with him, and his conduct was a lesson to them, teaching them not to indulge appetite by overeating or by eating improper food. He showed them that portions of the food provided could be passed by and portions chosen. Isn't that beautiful? You know, we need... 
to be a part of the fellowship with God's people, even if they don't all agree with us or we don't agree with them. And Christ set a wonderful example in that regard. Um, that's a very similar statement. We won't take time to read that. You know, Joseph Bates was our first health reformer in the church. He had become a vegetarian before 1844. He had quit smoking, quit drinking. He was a retired sea captain. And he, was, he embraced the Seventh-day Sabbath when he heard about it from Rachel Preston Oaks. And uh, he was, of course, one of our early pioneers. He was the oldest of the early pioneers. Everybody else was youth. And that's a wonderful story. But whenever he was asked why he didn't use things, he would simply say, I have eaten my share of them. It's a wonderful answer. He did not feel empowered to speak about health until Ellen White had her first vision on health in 1863. He felt it would detract from the message of the early church. And James White said, of him after he began teaching about health, it might be supposed that he would be exacting and overbearing. He was quite a strong preacher and a strong man in his personality. In his efforts to reform others, after he had set forth principles and urged them the importance of obedience to them, he was willing to leave his hearers free to decide for themselves. He didn't pull out the big gun. You won't get to heaven. He's, he did his education, and then he let people decide for themselves. And I think we need to keep that in mind. You know, the first and foremost goal of health ministry activities is to lead people to Jesus as the agent of transformational change in their lives. People are to be taught it is the power of God that provides the miraculous change in their lives. And this is just as true in the physical life as it is in the spiritual life. That's a picture of two happy vegetarians. They're two of my grandchildren. Um, you know, when Christ is central in my life, when I've been forgiven by him, when I've been strengthened by him, it fills my life with joy and with understanding and love for others who are walking the same pathway. Christ teaches me that I need to grow each day, physically, mentally, and spiritually. And I can only do that through his strength, when I have really internalized that truth, I cannot be critical of others who live differently than I do. Instead, it compels me to seek to help them in a loving and an understanding way. You and I need to gratefully accept the health that God has given us. We need to focus our lifestyle choices on the healthful and the wholesome. And we need to cheerfully yield our desires and our appetites to the sovereignty of his will and his love. And when we do, we can then rejoice in the benefits that he grants to us as we make wholesome choices through his abundant grace. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. We have a wonderful message of nutrition and health, but we must share it in an effective and loving way.
or we become health deformers instead of health reformers. You know, Ellen White used that term, health deformers. Okay. Took a little longer than I planned, but we covered some very important things. And I'm happy if this probably is as good a point as any to give you the opportunity of asking some questions if you'd like. Um, if not, I have lots more I can share, but uh, I, uh, I'd give you the chance to ask some questions. Don't all speak at once. I don't bite. I'm not accountable. I beg your pardon? We have one more session on weekend. Uh, we do. We have until 5.30 or close to that. 5.30. Yeah. Then supper's at 5.30. So. And I have a few things I'd like to share with you, but I, I want to give you a chance. If you don't have questions, that's fine. I don't even know of any product that is made out of meat. Uh, uh, Cyanocobalamin is the, is the scientific name for vitamin B12. Oh, vitamin D. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um, it's almost impossible to find a vegetarian source. And it actually is impossible to find a vegetarian source of vitamin D. And the most effective source, the most readily absorbed and what has the greatest impact is vitamin D3. And the most common source for that is fish, fish oil. Um, I, you know, I wrestle with that a little bit in my own head. Um, we, do, we do not need to take any vitamin D if we get adequate sunlight. What we're hearing and healthcare providers are scaring a lot of people. I just went to primary care physician and he said, you need to be taking vitamin D. And I said, why? And he said, well, we're going <laughs> to, he said, you just need to. And I said, well, I want you to do a, I want you to do a vitamin D level on me. Well, it turned out I was about 35, which uh, is, is in the, I mean, I know that they say up to 100, but the reality is when I read the literature, nobody really knows what the, what the appropriate level is today. And, uh, you know, if you're down around 12 or 13, I would certainly say, certainly as a nutritionist and dietitian, you probably ought to get out in the sun more. And remember, depending on where you live, of course, here in California, you're, you're really below that, that line, that latitude line. If you live north of Salem, Oregon, or some people say Medford. And I mean, I've heard people say Redding, California, uh, there's different, <laughs> that you cannot get enough um, UAB, uh, um, UAVB, um, I'm sorry, UVB, I forget the A there, um, and, um, and yet there are people who have lived adequately and healthfully for generations that live above that line and never come below it. Um, I think we have some other issues that are going on today, and I've just been reading a little bit about it. I think it's beginning to appear in the scientific literature. Um, we, number one, we do not know what a healthy level is. 
we don't really know how much we can, we can, how many, how much we have in reserves in the liver on a yearly basis, um, so that maybe in the winter time when the sun gets lower and the UVB rays get fewer, um, we may be able to draw from those stores. There's research that's being done in that area. We'll know more as that comes in. Uh, we also are living in a day and age where everybody is being encouraged to wear sunscreen, which actually blocks the, the UVB rays as well. And um, so, you know, it's probably better. And, and I know that the ladies' skin preparations, many of them have sun protection in them to prevent wrinkling and, you know, all the things that everybody's worried about. Uh, but it also blocks the synthesis of, of vitamin D in the skin. So, you know, there are, there are a number of things we don't know yet. Um, but I don't, I'm not too concerned if you're seeing a vitamin D level of 25 or higher um, serum levels. Uh, even though that may look like it's the low point where we, there's also increasing data that there's probably a J-shaped curve associated with vitamin D. In other words, there is a sweet spot. And if we get too little, of course, we know there's a problem. But if we get too much, there's also a problem. And we don't know exactly where those thresholds are and the work is being done. Um, God designed in us this, the ability to produce the vitamin D. And we just need to get exposed to the sunlight the rays of the sun at the appropriate times of the day. And that's sometimes a challenge. Uh, my wife and I try to walk at noon, and I know it's really hard in the hot, humid times of, of the year to get out. We much rather walk in the morning when it's cooler, uh, not nearly so hot, but in the morning this, we're, not, we're in the shade or we're, the sun is low and we don't get the exposure that we probably need in the middle of the day. The, the reality is that if you keep the wrists and the face, I mean the back of the hands and the face exposed to sunlight between two and, I'm sorry, between 10 and two in the day, in the middle of the day, uh, unless you're, and, and you are living at a latitude at least south of Salem, Oregon, um, in the wintertime, now summertime is different, um, and you expose yourself for 20 minutes, you probably produce enough uh, vitamin D to suffice for a week. So we really are very efficient at producing it when we get adequate exposure. Now, there's some argument about whether you need it daily or whether you need it once a week, but I don't think that you produce excess amounts if you get it on a daily basis by exposure to, your, to adequate sunlight. And it's, it's more complex than the simple saying, oh, you need to take a vitamin D supplement. Uh, we don't have all of the answers. But if you want to take a vitamin D supplement, that's fine. D th D3 is, is the most effective source of vitamin D. You know, following God's way has always provided challenges to people. And... Um, you know, as we have a flexible and balanced attitude, 
Um, I've found that most people respect the choices I make as long as I don't try and impose it on them. Um, sometimes we get, like I've said, you know, we point too many fingers. Um, and as a result, we offend people. And they don't like that. And some people resist more than others. I mean, all of us are human, and if somebody points the finger at us, you know, we, the human tendency is to become defensive. Now, I realize that even our example points fingers at people in some, at some times. And uh, so we just have to be willing to have a thick enough skin to, you know, kindly and patiently live the way we feel God would have us to live and make sure that we're empowered and our attitude is guided by, by his spirit. And um, in most cases, it all works out. Um, you know, I find there's an enormous amount of respect actually in, in traveling, and, and that's with, with non-members. I think sometimes, I think sometimes with uh, members it gets a little more difficult, and I have a few family members that, you know, are not of the same persuasion, and, you know, they can be a little bit irritated. Um, some of them won't have us over to their home because... You know, they don't want to accommodate to our dietary. They know we have them over to our home, and they mutter and complain about not having what they want when they're there, but we just ignore that. Um, but they don't have us over. They're either not comfortable or, you know. And, you know, on some, with some of them, we will once in a while take them out to invite them to come out to eat with us, and, you know, they get what they want to eat, uh, and we get what we want to eat. And we try to have fellowship and maintain a relationship with them um, under those circumstances. There are different ways. And I, we don't please everybody. If we do, we don't stand for anything. So we need to be cognizant of that. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.